namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami Continuing this talk entitled Seeing the Path, uh, this was given on the 8th of August 2003 at the Leicester Summer School. And uh, the first part of the talk, as you, those of you here yesterday, uh, addresses the um, different uh, aspects of the uh, first level of enlightenment, stream entry, and then uh, <coughs> the uh, Last part of the talk, Lumpur was talking about doubt, vichikicha, and whether to choose A or B, and such like. We think and have retentive memories, and those things are not to be despised. Thought is a tool. It's one of our can also be a source of great suffering, because a lot of our memories are very unpleasant. Somebody reminds us of something, an unpleasant memory arises. And then we feel depressed, saddened or angry because of something that happened 20 years ago. Just notice how memory works. We don't usually remember ordinary things. We remember the extremities, the great times and the horrible, successes and the failures. When I look back on my life, I find it easy to remember the unpleasant things that have happened to me, those things I resent or feel angry about, or regret or feel guilty about. Sometimes I can cheer myself up by thinking of the good things in my life, but for some reason my nature tends towards the negative, doesn't easily incline towards the positive. But recognize that memory arouses emotion. That's why we can remember something that happened 20 years ago and still feel angry about it now. The rational mind says, don't be silly, that's over and done with, it was a long time ago. Forget and forgive, just let it go. You can say all the wise things, Give yourself very good advice and feel that you should definitely do that, but you still feel like this. So notice, awareness includes the rational as well as the emotional. And the rational is often very critical of the emotional because rational thought doesn't like emotion. Men in particular, I think, prefer rationality. For many men, it's embarrassing to be lost in emotion. Rational thought is very nice. It's rapid and intelligent and clear. And it's a whole world. It's quite enjoyable. And then emotion comes in, and you find yourself resisting it. You don't like emotions because they aren't rational. So all you can do is rationalize and say, oh, this is just a bunch of rubbish. Forget it. Much ado about nothing. It doesn't really matter. That's a way of dismissing things. But as you trust more in awareness, you begin to recognize your emotional life. If you just ignore and deny it all the time, it's always going to come at you in some way. It will pursue you and haunt you. Which is why I think men get so depressed in middle age or later life. There's so much effort needed to hold down the emotional world that if it becomes too strong, and if it becomes overwhelming, it just ends in depression. You cannot experience any joy if you're not free emotionally. Also, after a while, the entertainment of thinking falls away. You get tired of just think, think, think all the time. 
clever ways of thinking about life seem so superficial and meaningless. Now, I have made many mistakes in the past by assuming that my memory of someone is the person. But if I remember someone who's not here, that is just a memory, isn't it? It's not the person. And memories are very selective. If the last time I met that person we had a terrible fight and parted saying terrible things to each other, that's the memory I'm left with. Twenty years pass and then somebody mentions his name and I say, Oh, he's a... I'm having nothing to do with him. He might have become an arahant in the meantime. I don't know. But I'm stuck with a memory and a powerful belief in that memory. If the last memory I have of him is a strong one, positive or negative, that's what I'm left with. Often Lumpur Sumedha would talk about um, when he was in the American Navy, the U.S. Navy, he had a, 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 a senior officer who um, made his life very difficult and seemed to have it in for him. And uh, when he's talking about this kind of theme, particularly about memory and, and emotion, he would point out how, yeah, you know, he was in his 20s when he was in the Navy, and how in his 70s he could still just think of the name of his chief petty officer, just pop. <laughs> pop the name into his mind and there'll be this explosion of how dare he and I think well, that was that was more than 50 years ago and who knows what's happened to that person but all I can uh, all I can think of that uh, that name triggers that emotion and all the things that were wrong with that person so uh, <clears throat> that was a, that's a very a very good example of how you know 30 40 years can go by but yet uh, an emotional reaction can be triggered, and in that moment, you're, you're angry again. Even though it was out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, you know, when he was a medic on a ship, and, and uh, the Korean War was going on, and it's some officer who's probably not alive anymore. But yet, the mind gets carried back, recreates that situation, and in that moment, how dare he? And the 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 mind gives life to those perceptions, and in that moment, it's it takes on takes on a reality, so that. Uh, uh, if we then, uh, as he's describing here, if we then sort of suppress that or dismiss that, and I'm sure women can do this as easily as men can, so. <laughs> the, uh, the, the very act of pushing away empowers something. It makes it stronger. The very fact that you push it away and say, get out of here, you don't belong, I, don't, I haven't got any time for this, I don't, I don't need this, this is just stupidity, uh, I, I, I don't accept this. That in a, uh, in a mysterious fashion, it, it actually strengthens that it makes it more real like this is a real thing that's really intruding upon a real me and it needs to be pushed away so that the me will not have this thing that shouldn't be intruding on it right if you follow that so that you've made it into a an apparently real thing that's impinging on a real me by the very fact of pushing it away so uh, uh in this respect and we, it was um uh talked about in the, uh, several of the other readings and, and talks. One of the, the most, um, I, I found, uh, helpful aspects of Lumpur Sumedho's teaching in the, when uh, I was here in the late 80s, early 90s, and, and he was um, using that as a very, very common theme of his teaching, was developing a mindfulness of emotion, and uh, so deliberately uh, inviting emotions in, exploring. So if you know that that person's name you know that uh, triggers a certain reaction, um, and it can be it can be negative as someone who's who's hurt your feelings or who's who's let you down. It can be someone that you you miss, someone that you were in love with. There was a sort of nostalgic feeling, 
for some beautiful time or some kind of lovely situation, um, or, uh, <coughs> whatever it, it might be, or a regret, something that you've done that was very hurtful or painful or really stupid that caused a lot of harm. And so that uh, he would uh, teach this uh, kind of uh, deliberate exploring of emotion to exactly go against this habit of, of pushing away. And so uh, even though you might think of those emotions as being unskillful, say anger or jealousy or, or self-hatred or um, nostalgia or uh, you know, emotional attachment, that they're not things that you particularly want to make stronger or you want to, to um, say, uh, say um, give more life to. But what he would point out was that, that the, in a way that the, the training of the heart to fully understand uh, emotion uh, is the way to, to free the heart from being. And so that uh, uh, I, I found that extremely helpful in dealing with, uh, with desire or fear or aversion or jealousy or uh, indignation. Um, regret, you know, the whole range of, of painful emotional states. And that uh, <clears throat> if you feel uh, uh, you've been treated unfairly, that's not fair. I didn't, you know, that's not what I asked for. You know, how can you treat me that way? That sense of being indignant or that, that's not right. It shouldn't be this way, um, which is a common experience for many of us. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> the uh, Even amongst Buddhist monastics, we're supposed to be particularly selfless. You know, we can still. Have the don't you know who I am uh, feeling, and that um, that's not fair. You shouldn't treat me that way, and so that um, inviting in. So if and uh, what he would encourage that I found uh, very helpful is is in a sense really making a study of a particular uh, emotion. So if you know that you if you get indignant about people not treating you as you would like to be treated, or if you have a lot of self hatred, I'm a terrible person. I'm a real failure. Um, nobody loves me because I keep getting things wrong or um, you're in love with someone or you you have a vendetta kind of a hatred for someone whatever the mind is latched onto as a particular uh, thing that um, you are seeing just within your own daily daily life or daily practice that the mind keeps moving towards complaining or regretting or obsessing um, or um, whining or, or worrying and you make that a study. So, okay, let's look at that whining, complaining. Let's look at that fearing. Let's look at that lusting. Let's look at that, that jealousy. And you make a program of it. So then, uh, <clears throat> and what the Lumpur would often su suggest, particularly if it's an emotion based around another person, you don't need the whole story. Like if it's your ex-wife ex or your ex-husband or your ex-ajan. <laughs> uh, or your current ajan. <laughs> The, you don't you don't need the whole story, just him. That's it. You know you know the story already, like you know which. Uh, yeah, and if you start reiterating the, the the things that have been done by yourself, others that are, uh, are painful, you know you, you tend to get lost in the story. You know the story already. So, or you can just uh, if it's um, say something in the in the past in a particular you know you say. 1985, <laughs> whatever it might be, you know that you know that date or, or the place where where something happened, um, and uh, you know where you got you made a really bad mistake. You know that particular school or that monastery or that hospital or that that country, and you think, oh right, Thailand. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you don't you don't need a whole complicated story, just a trigger, 
And so the, the method would be to um, make the mind as quiet as possible, as, as kind of st uh, still, and peaceful, clear as possible, and then just drop in to that, that empty space, that fertile space of the mind, that person's name or that day, you know, Thailand, 1985, or her, him. And, and then to watch the emotion that's triggered from that. So you, you, you say in a sense, and the way Lumpur would describe it is, so you start out with zero. You start out with this empty space, and you drop in this, this name or this thought as a, sort of, as a seed crystal, and then woof, you watch the, the emotional reaction take place, like indignation, like him with his chief pet, petty officer on the ship on, on the Pacific. You, know, you, you deliberately invite that in, so you watch that whole sort of ballooning of feeling of like, how dare you treat me that way? That's, don't you know who I am? And then the, the trick with this practice is to then not get lost in the story because the mind goes into reiterating, well, she did this and she did that, and then I should have, and then I should. And, but it's a, it's a very deliberate uh, turning of the attention away from the story and the people and the, the recreation of the images onto the physical feeling. So if it's indignation, where does, what does that feel like? If it's regret, what does that feel like? If it's fear, what does that feel like? If it's lust, what does that feel like? If it's anger, what does that feel like? Where is it in the body? And um, that, that's, uh, I found, was the, the trickiest part of it because the, uh, the attention easily goes to people and stories and, and such like. So to, to make it a real uh, um, deliberate attention just on the physical sensation, that, that's, uh, I found, the most testing or, or challenging part of this practice but it really it, it works best the more the, the attention can just go to the physical feeling and so you know oh this jealousy feels like this fear feels like this regret feels like this lust feels like this anger feels like this and then to stay with the attention on that physical sensation for as long as it's sustained so you would in a sense seed or you can trigger the emotion with that memory or thought then uh, uh, feel the sensations that go with that in the body and bring attention to that so that you're knowing it. It's like you know the, the texture of the, of the wood under your fingers or the weight of the body on the, on the cushion. Okay, it feels like this. It's got this texture, this sensation. And to, to stay with it, to bring the attention to that and to fully accept, well, this is the feeling of this emotion. It's like this. Not whether it should be there or shouldn't be there, whether it's good or bad or any other opinion about it. Here it is, anger feels this way, indignation feels this way, not getting what I want feels this way, being stuck with what I don't want feels this way. <laughs> Having a, a, a lustful feeling towards this person feels this way, uh, feeling regret feels this way. Having uh, a, a, a kind of uh, self-hatred feels this way. And one of the really interesting things um, that uh, uh, was very revealing to me was how when you bring the attention to the, the physical quality of an emotion, it's far more digestible, far more uh, simple, and, uh, and also less personal than when the mind goes into all the shoulds and shouldn'ts and the, the stories of it. And <clears throat> my, I, I found that I, was, I, worked, uh, I needed to work on fear and anxiety a lot, and that it was really revealing to me that... that uh, the, the actual experience of fearing was not so unpleasant as I thought it was. That uh, I could see that, as I've said many times, how 
I spent a huge amount of time and energy and effort trying to get away from that fearful feeling, but in itself it was not that bad. It wasn't that uncomfortable or unpleasant. Similarly with with the mind obsessing on something, a kind of a sweet memory or being in love with someone or, or kind of a sense of cherishing something that we think of as good and we want more of it. Um, in a in an ironic way, when you when you look at that uh, that feeling of of owning or cherishing or, or um, holding on uh, someone as dear, it's actually not that pleasant. <laughs> Think, well, I want more of this. This is this is kind of a, kind of uncomfortable. Why would I why would I want to extend this or keep this or hold it? So that way of uh, of looking at emotion and really knowing it and feeling it is. Um, it's in a sense entering by a whole different door. It's like a very non-personal door using a somatic or physically based entry point. And, the, and the also when it's uh, uh, experienced through that, that mode, through just the, the physical sensation of an emotion, then the quality of genuine acceptance, the sense of, yeah, this belongs, this is part of nature, yeah, it's, it's just this that's far more easy to access and, and far, far more genuine. So the, the heart really accepts. Anger feels like this. Resentment feels like this. Uh, longing feels like this. Fear feels like this. Oh, that's all. And not with the, the thinking mind saying, that's all, you know, it's no big thing. It's a, a, a genuine intuition of the heart. Like, oh, oh this, is, this, is, this is no big thing. Um, and so whether it's painful uh, and, and sort of something that, tends to be inflated as bad. It's like, oh, it's just this kind of, this, this particular texture, or something that we chase after and we think of as good, like being possessive or uh, longing for someone. Oh, well, this is, it's also just, it's a, it's a feeling of you know, this particular texture or pressure. It's, it's nothing that particularly pleasant or good. Why do I want more of this? So it, it's, in a sense, normalizing uh, and evening out the, the attitude and helping the, the mind to genuinely know emotional reactivity and, and, and the conditioning of emotional habits. So then it becomes naturally much easier not to chase after the ones that we call pleasant or to, to run away from or suppress and, and deny the ones that we call painful. The, the, the uh, real training of the heart to be far more patient and, and even, have a quality of upeka, evenness of mind, evenness of attitude in relationship to uh, emotional states. And then, uh, in just to f- finish off about that as a particular practice, then after sustaining the attention on the body and those f- feelings for five or ten minutes or so, then uh, consciously uh, let it fade out. And he would encourage using the, the natural uh, as- the attributes of the out-breath, the letting go and relinquishing quality of the out-breath, to, oh, as a way of letting things dissolve and fade away. And uh, sometimes uh, it can take you know, three seconds to trigger an emotion and then 45 minutes to let go of it. <laughs> but he, uh, what he would uh, recommend, and I, and I found that also, is that it's, it's good to really stay with it until it it's really has faded, like the, the sand castle really has been washed away by the, by the, the sea. There's, there's, there's nothing left of that emotion, and, and the mind comes back to that zero quality, that sense of openness, stillness, uh, clarity, um, so that you, in a sense, follow the whole cycle through, that the emotion's been triggered, it's arisen, it's come into being, it's done its thing, it's faded away. So in that moment, you've seen the whole life cycle of that emotional state, whether it's, uh, whether it's regret, or fear, or anger, or, or, or love, or, 
or hate, whatever it might be. You've seen it coming into being, doing its thing, fading away. You've seen its whole life cycle, and it's been accepted. It's been known throughout the whole you know, the process of its coming into being and, and fading. And <coughs> the uh, if one develops that as a way of relating to emotional habits, it, it has an immensely powerful effect, I find. And, and uh, so to make a bit of a project for a particular emotional reaction that, that your mind is conditioned to, then uh, if you, you do that for several weeks or months, or, uh, then it can really make a, a radical difference to the way the mind relates to the sense of, of attachment to another person, either loving them and feeling that they belong to you or you belong to them or that you can't, you're afraid of losing them, or attachment in terms of I'll never forgive them, <laughs> you know, how dare they, you know, uh, you've, you, you've hurt me and, and I'll never let you forget it and so forth whether it's uh, whatever kind of attachment it might be it puts it into a whole different uh, context a whole different uh, framework <coughs> to continue now I have made many mistakes in the past by assuming that my memory of someone is the person but if I remember someone who is not here that's just a memory isn't it it's not the person after someone has died, we do, of course, have the memory of that person. But the memory now is connected to the word death. If you notice, when people are alive, even though they might be in pain and very sick in a hospital, somehow we can relate to them. The person's still alive. Of course, we have sympathy for those who are sick and in pain, but pain is something we can understand. Disease and all these things are understandable in, their, in our own experience. Death, on the other hand, don't know. Ajahn Chah was ill for about 10 years before he died. Ajahn Pasano phoned me many times from Thailand to say he thought Ajahn Chah was dying. So Ajahn Pasano at that time was uh, the abbot of Manachat, the international monastery. So Ajahn Pasano phoned me many times from Thailand to say he thought Ajahn Chah was dying. So I would get the first plane out, and then he would pull through. Pretty soon you get used to that. The idea of Ajahn Chah being sick and of Ajahn Chah dying these I adjusted to. I knew he was going to die at some point. I wasn't expecting immortality. But when he did actually die, I knew he was dead. It was a different feeling. It was a feeling of real grief. For a long time there had been a feeling of, he's dying, but he's still alive. There was hope there, and I could relate to that. But Ajahn Chah is dead. That was finality. Just note how words affect us how the power of perception affects our feelings. Some words are just neutral and don't arouse much feeling, whereas others have a very powerful effect. The tone of voice, even, or how people say things can also affect us. We're so sensitive that if somebody says beautiful words in an angry tone of voice, I love you, we feel the anger, even though the words might be very nice. Sorry about that. <laughs> <clears throat> in the Navy, we used to call each other terrible names, you old son of a bitch. It was mostly just expressions of affection. That's a very common English way of operating as well. Friendly insults. British style of expression. It's a question of recognizing what sensitivity is and how memories can affect us. I found it helpful to notice consciously 
But memory is memory. Whether it's a strong memory, a beautiful memory, or an ugly memory, whatever it is, it is not a person. It is merely a memory. In that way, I can actually recognize what's happening. I'm here with you right now, and this is not a memory. When I go back to Amravati, of course, you will be a memory to me. Then the conditions will have changed, because memory is different from direct experience. Remembering somebody, however, might bring up feelings of unease and resentment, and endless fears might be created about meeting that person again. What will I do? He just upsets me so much, I don't think I can take any more. But we've got to resolve our differences. I've got to confront him. I must say exactly how I feel. And as I plan it all out ahead of time, sorry, and I plan it all out ahead of time, if I let go, on the other hand, if I don't come from, I'm going to tell you the truth, or from a feeling of fear, if I trust in the awareness, then the conditions will be present for a genuine meeting when it takes place. If I go to meet him with a bias, and I don't see what I'm doing, then I don't see him, do I? I see my bias. Project that onto him. and Then act accordingly. Maybe saying terrible things which are totally unrelated to him, as he is in, as he is in the present. You can see this worldwide in terms of terrorists. We talk about the axes of evil, and the war on terror, the evil forces. We hear these kinds of phrases all the time now, and they are perceptions that bring up emotional reactions. So, notice that. It isn't a matter of condemning it, but of recognizing how easily we are affected by what we hear, see, and experience through the senses and through the mind. Awareness, however, is the background of that and is our refuge. That's the stability doesn't change. It allows change and knows change, but it sustains itself. This is what we mean by refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Buddhang Saranangachami, Dhammang Saranangachami, Sanghang Saranangachami. Take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. When you take these refuges, try not to say the words just because you think you're supposed to, but really contemplate what they mean. I found it helpful to try to figure out those words intellectually and then see the reality of them in the present moment. Buddha Dhamma Sangha is in here. It isn't some abstract thing. Through our own ability to recognize and investigate thinking, memory, personality, and attachment to conventions, we actually remove the obstructions to the path. The stream-enterer is one who sees the path. We create delusions. We're not born with the delusions of being attached to rules and rituals, personality belief, and skeptical doubt. These are created after we're born. They're not natural in the same way that consciousness is natural. So just to, to go back to that um, uh, piece that Lumpur was saying about projecting and, and say preparing for encounters and such like and how we create each other, this is a, a very, very strong habit uh, in our minds and... Um, how um, we get, uh, say, uh, filled with our own expectations. And so uh, oftentimes uh, if we, we live in our sort of mentally created world of when I see this person, I'm going uh, to say this and then they'll say that, and then when I say that, then they'll say this, whether it's just preparing for a meeting or just expecting to, to see somebody for a cup of coffee or... Uh, you've got a difficult encounter that's that's uh, coming up, or a, a, a challenging um, meeting in your workplace, or whatever. Then the mind creates these scripts, and um, <clears throat> and the more that 
we typecast each other. We create, you know, he's like this or she's like that. And when I see him, I'm going to say this. And he's always like that. So he always says such and such. And so when he says that, I'm going to say this. And when I, when I say this, he's going to say the other. And then when he says that, then I'm going to say. And so that, uh, uh, as Lumpur is describing it here, um, I found myself doing that a huge amount. Uh, I'm quite an active thinking mind and uh, very verbal. And so I would, uh, when I first started to meditate and uh, was living in the monastery, then for about five or six years, I found myself scripting the, the dialogues I would have with people um, for no particular reason, and it was just a habit. <laughs> and so uh, I would do this all the time, you know, the, very, very regularly, and I would create these expectations. And um, I, you know, often while we were working or during the meditation, you know, my mind would come up with these, these scripts of how when I see the Ajahn, I'm going to say this, and he'll say that, and so on and so forth. And um, it was such a regular feature that um, you know, I just thought, is this going to go on for the rest of my life? <laughs> but what I found happening was that on no occasion during that entire time did anyone ever follow the script. <laughs> ever. Not once. It's like, you know, and I, I could... I can have it all carefully worked out. Well, I know what he's going to say. I mean, I know he's not going to like this, or I know he's going to want to do this, or he's going to say. And then you're you're there, and you've got your script, and say, wait a minute, these are, that's not your lines. You missed your line, you know. <laughs> and then you're oh, what? Oh, he's actually quite happy about it. Oh, oh. So I haven't got to give him an excuse. Um, oh, what do I do now? So what happens uh, when we? We create uh, an image of somebody else. We, we, we love them, or we fear them, or we dislike them, or they're the boss, or we're their boss, or, um, we have an, or they're a man, or they're a woman, or they're older, or they're younger, or they're someone that you're responsible for, or someone you've got to impress, or someone that you want to get something from, or whatever. That we create these perceptions. Oh, this is someone I need something from. I want her to think this way, or this person is my boss, so or these the Ajahns, so I've got to be like this to this person, or this, I'm supposed to be in charge here, I'm supposed to know what I'm talking about. Okay, so we create a, a, an image of how we're supposed to be, and we create a perception of how the other is supposed to be. And then uh, what happens is that instead of having a dialogue, you have two monologues going on, because they're doing the same thing to you. you know, that they, as you are sort of coming out with your stream of projections uh, to them, then they're coming out with their, their stream of projections towards you. So uh, it's very, very common to not have, when you're having a conversation, when, when you think you're having a conversation, you're not. You're actually having two separate monologues and you're just waiting for the other person to pause so you can carry on with your spiel. And, uh, and they're doing the same, waiting for you to catch a breath so they can carry on with their bit. And, and there's actually no communication going on, really. Um, and uh, the uh, 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 we laugh, but it's uh, it's painfully common to, for us to have these these experiences, and that we don't meet each other. We meet our expectations of each other. We meet our projections, and what I think you think, or how um, uh, <coughs> what I I uh, I'm I'm assuming that you're you're how you I am I'm assuming you are seeing me, and and then what uh, I guess is my effect, the effect of my words on you, and so on and so forth. So what Lumpur is, is describing here, taking trusting in awareness, is 
as you're going into that uh, that encounter, you're going to have lunch with somebody, you're going to a meeting, or you're walking into a classroom, or you're giving a dumber reading, <laughs> rather than oh well, when they ask that question, I really hope that person's not going to be there. He's so difficult. He's such a pain in the neck. And, but if he says this, then I'm going to say that. Say, okay, as you are expe- expecting, you know, oh, this is a feeling of expecting. This is the feeling of oh dear, I hope so and so isn't there because that always uh, that always makes things difficult. Feeling that's what this is. <laughs> So you're aware of what the mind is creating uh, there and then. And you're not suppressing it, but you're aware, oh, this is the, oh, I hope so-and-so isn't there at the meeting because that would be really difficult feeling. <laughs> That's what this is. And so then and when you go into the meeting, oh, it's great, he's not here. That's fantastic. Oh, this is the, it's, oh, this, this is the, oh, it's great, he's not here. That's fantastic feeling. <laughs> so that you're not buying into those judgments and moods, but knowing them as they as they take shape and seeing how the mind likes to invest in that. So uh, the more that we are and live, and I've lived in community for forty years now, so um, that's most of my life, <laughs> all of my all of my adult life, uh, I've lived in community, and so that this is uh, tremendously important to get used to those script writing habits and to to let go of them. Uh, and to instead develop this trusting in awareness or, or seeing if the mind is wanting to prepare or is based on excitement or fear or just planning and, and expectation to to notice that and just to to be not swept along by that not, not to be believing in it but to ready to be ready to to let that go and with my own script writing habits what happened it was kind of interesting that after about five or six years, it wasn't the, it wasn't anything that was under personal control, but it just sort of it was like uh, I, like when I did a psychology degree, if you if you have a pigeon um, uh, and you're, you're you're training a pigeon to respond to a stimulus, and if it does a, a particular action five hundred times and it never and it never gets a reward, it'll stop. Like this is totally point. I've been I've been hitting this button for five hundred times. I'm not getting my my piece of banana. I'm fed up. <laughs> I'm stopping this. If it's ever rewarded, then it keeps on going. But if it gets no reward, eventually it will stop. It's called operant conditioning. So, after five or six years of getting no piece of banana in my my <laughs> my conditioning experiment, it's like this doesn't work. This has not worked once. I've had no reward from all this planning. No one has ever followed the script. <laughs> and something just sort of stopped. This this kind of ditched that whole way of, of operating. So my mind doesn't do that uh, so much, uh, if at all, nowadays. But it was, uh, it was very, very dominant for uh, quite, a, quite a long time. Uh, but I do recommend this in terms of not just living here in community, but people uh, in your own lives as, a, as lay people, going away from here, living in your families, to be aware of this dynamic and to um, say, see how much the mind likes to take refuge in that. That planning and preparing and fearing, expecting, believing, um, projecting, and that if you really want to communicate with people, not have just a a, a kind of a monologue that you're putting out into the world, but you you want to really communicate, then there needs to be that letting go of our of our projections, letting go of what we expect, letting go of how we want to be seen, or you know who we think we are. And to to be ready to to trust, so that you go into a 
a meeting or an encounter, an event of you know, family uh, gathering, and you're essentially ready for whatever. And, uh, and the, the more that you are, uh, say, dropping your expectations and projections of how you see others or how you want to be seen by them and, and all that, then you can be really fresh to the moment. You can be really um, say, alert to what's there and you find yourself far more able to enjoy what's going on and, and attune to the, the people that, that you're with. Because the more that you are not putting out a bunch of projections uh, and the more you're actually listening to others and receiving what they, uh, what they say, then uh, they, they pick that up. They go, oh my goodness, he's actually hearing me. Wow. <laughs> Hello, <laughs> and there, there's much more of a genuine meeting rather than just a, a, a kind of a words being said, but no real communication happening. So, before uh, I carry on, any questions, thoughts, reflections, communications? <laughs> rather than me just blasting out at you. Yes, Evan. Self-hatred or, for example, for self-hatred, um, when uh, we have uh, this, uh, this tendency a lot and we don't uh, pay attention like, like you did, uh, you pay attention but uh, with awareness, and like you did with the verbal talk, does it fade away uh, with the time or is it more uh, we develop um, equanimity It depends on the person and the conditioning. Um, it's uh, I mean, the the perspective can change radically, but the um, uh, so that the the way that the mind works with a particular habit, and so um, the um, the more that it, uh, that you you work with the emotion, the, the, in a sense, the less power it has to be convincing. So like when uh, 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 someone made uh, the, the, um, the comment to Ajahn Chah once, that they said, oh, you know, Lumpur, you, know, you have a lot of anger. He said, yes, but I don't use it. <laughs> uh, and that uh, the, um, the, the kind of shape of an emotion or, or the, 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 say the, the pattern of it can continue. Or the style of expression, like say Ajahn Mahabur was always very kind of uh, blunt and, and straightforward and aggressive, uh, like a boxer. You know, and many of his Dhamma talks, he got a lot of boxing analogies. In his, you get in the ring with the kilesas and you knock them down, and you, then they get up and you knock them down again, and, you knock, and they get up and you knock them down again. So they have to carry it out on a stretcher. And, you know. So he's a punchy kind of a guy, and so even though he's regarded as an arahant. He would still use punchy kind of language, and uh, and could come across as quite quite aggressive, and uh, and so that the, that form was there. And they they call that um, vasana or the kind of characteristic, but there's no uh, there's no heat in there. There's no kind of um, attachment to it. There's no, there's no um, strength in it. Also, in the time of the Buddha, there was um, two two monks who were from. Um, uh, one of the the uh, 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 low caste Indian families, sort of the, you know, the bottom strata of society, and they felt that this 
and this uh, monk was being very um, rude to them, very very superior, very very haughty, very kind of uh, looking down on them and being insulting towards them. And he'd been a Brahmin before he was uh, a bhikkhu. So they complained to the Buddha um, that you know, this monk is being very, uh, very rude, very, uh, very um, superior, and disrespectful towards us. You know, we're we're sudras or we're chandalas, we're kind of an untouchable caste, or, and we're just we were. But you know, in the sangha, we lose our caste. So you know, this monk is really behaving badly in terms of being so sort of superior to us. And the Buddha said, "Well, uh, it, it's it's fine that you uh, that you bring this this up, but." Uh, Please take my word for it. This monk is an arahant and is incapable of, of actually wishing, you know, having disrespect for you, or wishing harm towards you, or being, being rude towards you. It's just he's been a Brahmin for five hundred lifetimes, so that's how he talks. You know, that's his his whole manner. It comes across as this kind of snooty, and superior kind of mode. He can't help it. It's just. The sh- like the, the the shape of your feet or the color of your eyes. It's just well, that's that's how he comes across. But it's there, there's no um, there's no malice there. There's no there's no defilement within that. So and then with the meditation and also living in community, then that it's important to be both using your own wise reflection, your own exploring. Like, well, what's behind that? I, am I just making an excuse? Am I calling this? Vasana, but actually, it's just a, a convenient way of making an excuse for my defilements. <laughs> it's just, this it just feels, it just looks angry. I'm not really angry. You know. It just feels like I'm, you might have the impression I'm being greedy. I'm not really being greedy. It's just the way it might look to you. That's your problem. Really, my heart is pure. So, the inner legal team can sometimes be making a, a kind of being sneaky, kind of weaseling around a, a particular issue. So your own wise reflection, also the feedback that you get from your friends in the in the holy, like-minded people who say, um, <clears throat> you know, it looks like you're being really greedy. <laughs> you know, so you're ready to get the feedback from from your kalyanamita, and uh, and that's what informs us, so that we can explore and think, well, what's really going on here? You know, what's what's genuinely the case? And so. Then that both your own internal reflection and then the feedback you get from the people around you—that's what informs you—and and, and so you you develop your own perspective as best you can. And so that, but uh, I find that um, uh, you know, in terms of the 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 path, certainly, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion can be completely uprooted. You know, that's you know, the the eightfold path is is directly. Aimed at that, so you know, if arahantship is a possibility, then uh, sure, you know, all, all greed, hatred, and delusion can can be uprooted, but that it doesn't dissolve personality. Well, like I was saying about Ajahn Mahabur, uh, and that the or things that people are particularly interested in or gifted with. And there's a, one of the most interesting suttas um, in the middle length discourses that uh, is the Mahagosinga Sutta. Uh, and it's a, a, a sutta where you have these different um, disciples of the Buddha, you know, Sariputta and Revata and Ananda and uh, Anuruddha and Moggallana, and they're all living in the forest again. It's a beautiful moonlit night in the forest. And then uh, I think it's Ananda goes to see Venerable Sariputta and says, uh, 
this is a wonderful moonlit night, and the the, the trees are all flowering, and the 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 scents of of, of the, the forest blossoms are in the air. What kind of a, a monk would illuminate a forest on, on the night? On, illuminate the forest on a night like this? And then Sariputta says, um, "Yeah, one who has heard the teachings and who is, uh, is able to put all the teachings into practice, has comprehensive knowledge of the teachings, and can uh, can practice meditation." With a full accomplishment in accordance with the, with the teachings. So, well, let's go and ask Moggallana. They go see Moggallana. Says, "Well, I think a monk who's developed all his psychic powers." You know. <laughs> so Sariputta had no psychic powers. He was a very good meditator, and very comprehensive in his knowledge and understanding. But he had he had no psychic powers at all. Moggallana was a sort of psychic power wizard, right? And so then they go and then they see uh, Mahakasapa. He says, "I think the kind of monk who's a, who's an ascetic who practices all of the austere." Tutanga practices, he would illuminate the forest and night like this. So each one of them so basically describes their own speciality. So Ananda says, well, I think you know, a monk who can recite all the teachings from memory. And uh, so they're not being proud. They're just sort of, each one kind of just talks about their own, their own particular gift or their own particular interest. And then they go to the Buddha and they, they have the same uh, conversation with him. And interestingly enough, what he says is that, in a sense, talking about his own Focus. So it's the kind of monk that would sit down and say, "I'm not going to move from this spot until complete uh, <coughs> enlightenment has been realized." You know, that's the kind of monk that would illuminate the forest on a night like this. So each one speaks according to their own particular style or their own particular preference. They're not being sort of they're not competing or trying to make each other look bad, but they're just they're referring to their where their own uh, sort of channel of activity and their own uh, say. Mean, both means of liberation or the, or the particular skills that have been most helpful to them or that they have put most time and effort into. Okay. So to continue. When we are born, we are conscious. Consciousness and the physical body are natural conditions. What we acquire afterwards are greed, anger, hatred, resentment and delusion. These come mostly out of ignorance through reactiveness. And we create our personalities and attachments to conventions, views and opinions. By taking refuge in the Buddha as the awakened state of being, however, we begin to have perspective on both the conditioning process and the awareness that transcends conditions. So the conditions can be seen. What you think you are, you suddenly realize, is not what you are. This is not a matter of trying to dismiss or judge anything, but of recognizing that everything is what it is. It is Dhamma. It is the way it is. All conditions arise and cease. So it isn't a question of denying, judging or criticizing, but of just discerning. The wisdom faculty develops out of that. Don't think that the recognition of stream entry is such a difficult thing. In the Theravada, it tends to be elevated to this level of being a high attainment. But I found that to be very unhelpful. The ego would like to attain and become, my personality wants to become an arahant, but my personality will never become an arahant, so I can't trust that. We get attached to the conventions we use, to meditation techniques, ideas of Buddhism, schools of Buddhism, views about Buddhism, and we don't recognize the attachments we have. We align ourselves with the conventional form of Buddhism and then wonder why we are never liberated through it. That's not because of the school of Buddhism, but because of the attachment to it. 
I encourage you, therefore, to trust in your ability to be aware. Really explore that. Really notice that. Then you'll begin to recognize your own doubt, worry, or whatever, but as the witness rather than the judge. Then you'll not be so willing to buy into these states, follow them, or be intimidated by any thoughts or memories. Just notice your emotional reactions. Rather than trying to figure out why you are angry, notice what it's like to feel angry. Notice that the anger is like this. And really take the opportunity to recognize and accept it. The same with greed, doubt, fear or jealousy. To simply recognize these things is all that is necessary. You don't need to know why. It isn't necessary to know why. Just know it is this. And recognize non-thought as well. Just recognize that. So be very patient with yourself and with the conditions that you're experiencing. Eventually, if you're patient enough, they will drop away of their own accord. Then notice the feeling. It's like a state of bliss. It isn't high. It isn't like being over the moon. But it is a sense of being really present, really full and complete. No self. So notice that. When you let go and allow things to be what they are in yourself, the practice develops this way. Then more and more you gain confidence in the practice. The practice becomes clearer, easier. It's not an artificial state that you're recognizing, but a natural one. Anything artificial, created, depends on other things to support it. But being present doesn't depend on other things to support it. The important thing is to recognize this. So the... Um, Again, the, uh, the taking of refuge in the Buddha, and as Lumpur has been saying about Buddha Dhamma Sangha, as not just as things that you repeat because everyone else is repeating them, but to to contemplate those. Uh, this is very much in the in the spirit of uh, Lumpur Cha's teaching, uh, and saying you know the Buddha uh, is not the Buddha that's a refuge is not the Buddha who lived two two and a half thousand years ago, but rather that. A refuge is a safe place. A refuge is a, an accessible um, shelter, something that we can use you know, here and now. And so the the image of a Buddha or the memory of a Buddha or the idea of a Buddha two and a half thousand years ago or the composer of the Dharma teachings, that's you know, an idea or a perception. Uh, that's not a safe place. That's not a, anything that, that's secure or dependable. What is secure, what is dependable, is this quality of, of awareness itself. That is something that is is uh, reliable, that the mind can know, the, the heart can can know, can be awake, can be aware in this moment. Similarly, Dhamma doesn't just mean the, the verbal teachings of the Buddha or the collection of, of words gathered together uh, or you know, ideas about the way things are, but it is the very fabric of nature that the Dhamma is the integrative principle of, of nature, of the way the world works, the way the universe, the mind, the... the, the uh, the physical and mental uh, universe, how it how it's formed, how it operates. So it, it <coughs> it's not an idea; it's a, a, a an intrinsic quality, the very fabric of what what is and what and what we are. Sangha. Then, um, if you follow along with with this, then if the the Buddha is that quality of awareness, uh, that, uh, and that's an, a, an attribute of nature, so that the 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 Dhamma is the substance, Buddha is the function, then Sangha, in, in a sense, is 
how that manifests in the world. So if the, if the, the mind is awake, what happens to, uh, as a result of, of that wakefulness is wholesome action, an action that is, is uh, uh, harmless, that is beneficial, that is uh, appropriate for time, to time and place. Another way of talking about it, uh, uh, the internal aspect of Sangha that I, I like to use, is uh, it's that in, uh, aspect of the heart that loves the good, it's that, that uh, rejoices in what is wholesome and recognize, recognizes the wholesome and the unwholesome and rejoices in the wholesome and recoils from the unwholesome. So that uh, when, <coughs> as, uh, as Lumpur Sumedha would put it, when the Buddha sees the Dhamma, what arises is the Sangha, or when the the awake mind sees the way things are, then what results is wholesome action. That's a, a way of relating those those three refuges to to uh, what you are and the, what are sort of reliable qualities to have at the very center of our uh, of our life and to be consciously reiterating that. When we say "Putang Sarangachami, Damang Sarangachami," we say these things over and over again. That it's not just revering those ideas, but um, consciously putting those those qualities um, at the very center of, of attention in our life, rather than our personality or our list of things to do, or our loves and our hates, our, our, uh, our past and our future, but rather, as, so when we have these ceremonies like Saturday morning, Sunday morning, or the, or the observance days, we we recite these words. They are there, and uh, in, in the chanting you know, that we do every day, but they are there to keep putting those qualities, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, uh, at the very center of our world rather than the habits of personality or the body or our name or our, our personal story. So that that's a very deliberate uh, sort of psychological device that the Buddha established as a way of going from a sort of self-centered perspective, which is common and, and natural and ordinary, to a, a Dhamma-centered or a a nature-centered perspective, so that when we recite those words, Buddhang Saranagachami, Dhammang Saranagachami, Sangang Saranagachami, it's like a, or when we bow, like putting the head down on the floor, it's like this guy likes to be up on top, judging everything and in charge of everything, putting that down on the floor, because nose on the carpet, like putting that down below the uh, the qualities of Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, so that, that um, the the managing director, decision maker, the, the thing that assumes it's in charge is physically put down below the uh, the, the triple gem. So that there's a, a physical gesture of let's put that in charge. <laughs> that's that's that, that's what we want to have uh, running this life rather than uh, self view and ego and, and, and habits of, uh, of perception and uh, uh, opinion. In the Four Noble Truths, the third truth is about realizing and recognizing. And the fourth is about cultivating and developing. Just from one little insight, if you really appreciate it, more and more you begin to see the path. You might still get carried away with other things, of course, but don't trust that. Don't regret it either. Don't make problems about your inability to really meditate. We can persecute ourselves about not meditating as much as we think we should. But just notice that. Just notice the way you hold meditation. Notice the perception you have about how many hours you do, and about the need to become more patient, and so on. 
You might have very good ideas about meditation, but when you're attached to ideas and the personality belief, you're always going to feel guilty, doubt yourself. But as soon as you do that, just begin to look at it. Look at whatever your feelings are, whether good or bad, high or low. I'm fed up with meditation. I don't want to do it anymore. Oh, but I should. I should practice. <gasps> look at that. Your awareness of these things is the opportunity you have of developing the path in this present moment. After you see through the first three fetters, so self-view, uh, skeptical doubt, doubt you know, about what is the path or what's not the path, and attachment to conventions, <coughs> after you see through the first three fetters, the primal energies are still there, as with the once returner. And as a non-returner, you're still attached to refinement and tranquility. Then, finally, the arahant is one who is completely himself or herself, at ease in being truly aware, just being with life as it happens. All delusions resolved. This is someone who doesn't make a problem about anything. So an arahant, in Theravada school, is not cut off, but is no longer deluded by the conditions that he or she has to experience in life. I don't know what I will have to experience before I die, good health or bad, success or failure, whatever, but that doesn't bother me anymore doesn't concern me. When one is willing to just live one's life, whether it's happy, successful and healthy or not, isn't a problem, because one sees that the karma is like this. The conditions for sickness and bad health are here, but one doesn't create a problem around whatever life presents. In that, uh, that last little piece, you might have noticed the, the word, that Lumpur uses the word just quite often. Just notice that. Just notice the way you hold meditation. <clears throat> just begin to look at it. So, just is a word that in, uh, contains universes. Just practice. <laughs> it's a kind of Buddhist joke. You know. Just follow the path and it leads to Nibbana. <laughs> what else is there to do? So that's a Buddhist joke. Ha, 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 ha. So just is a small word, you have four letters, but it contains universes. So uh, I, when I, when, as, I'm, as I'm reading this, I think, well, yeah, just notice the way it is. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. But uh, it's also, it's challenging, and it, it maybe is assuming a lot, but also, um, in a way, it's true, too. Just notice the Four Noble Truths and how they work. Uh, so that there's that... Um, Acknowledgement that it's it's simple, but it's it's also extremely challenging, and that uh, taking on a, a, a human life and and recognizing the the depth of conceit that we have, how important we think we are, or how uh, say significant our feelings seem to be, or how right our opinions feel to be, or how how say <clears throat> how badly we regret the things that we've done wrong, or how stupid we were to make that terrible mistake, or how unforgivable. I am, or they are, <laughs> he or she, or, or they are, uh, or how hopeless it is. All of those things can be uh, uh, incredibly real. They can seem to be incredibly solid. Um, and we don't realize how, by giving it solidity, the degree to which we set the mind up for, for suffering. When well, how we think it should be is frustrated. When, some, when, we, when someone is when told, no, you can't have that. You don't deserve it. Who do you think you are? 
then we might feel outraged or upset or like, how do you, how can, how can you treat me that way? That's really unfair. Exactly that moment that the tender spot has been hit. Okay, look at that. <laughs> that was a live one. To 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 look at those those feelings, they seem so real, so genuine, so important. It's not saying that you you're not being treated unfairly. <laughs> you know, maybe someone in the sh- in the shop is being rude to you and is treating you badly. But in that moment, what do we do with that that feeling of being dismissed or or, or disrespected or discarded? Right? There's there's uh, uh, the monks uh, who felt the Brahmin bhikkhu was kind of being rude and un- unkind to them. What do we do with that feeling in that moment? Uh, how do we work with that? So that it's uh, <clears throat> the more that we can recognize the, the strength of those habits, and say, whoa, I really got lost there. Uh, you can't just wish the habits away. You can't just decide, okay, anger's really stupid. I'm, I'm not going to get angry anymore. <laughs> Another Buddhist joke. <laughs> Lust is really obstructive. I think I've had enough of that. Good luck. So uh, you can't just wish away those those habits that we have, having opinions, fears, desires, aversions. Um, but we can uh, be aware of them. We can, uh, and what Lumpur is saying over and over and over again is that quality of awareness, that, that mindful uh, knowing of the habits of mind. That's that's the path that, that leads to the the real transcendence of them, the integration of, of them, understanding them, knowing them, and then freeing the heart from being dominated by that. So I'll leave it there for today. Sadhu.